Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A. FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hi, guys. Not as always, but definitely this time, this is Dr. Santosh, your peds infectious diseases doctor. And for today and the foreseeable future, it's me, Dr. Ward, your ER doc. This is the beginning of July, and do you guys know what happens every <laughs> July? New interns! The 4th of July barbecue? The birth of our nation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All that, all that junk as well. Most importantly, Comic Con, San Diego International Comic Book Convention. Now, you may not know this, but I am a huge comic book nerd. This comes as a shock, and I figured that I would like to take this opportunity. We're going to devote this episode to comic book medicine <laughs> medical conditions of comic book characters medical things that are unique to comic book worlds and where comic books and real world medicine cross over so before we do that we'll start off with a little bit of information about san diego comic-con most importantly safety tips for those of you who are attending one <laughs> bring snacks all right, you are going to be walking. There's almost five miles of exhibit hall alone to be going up and forth all day. You're going to get tired. You're going to get hungry. If you're waiting in line for panels, you cannot leave, as most of you who have been there before well know. So bring snacks, things like granola bars, dried fruit, plenty of water, things that are easily portable, don't require cooking. 
after uh, the snacks are a combo of protein and sugar, so you don't get the sugar highs and sugar sugar crashes because those are just as bad. And the last <laughs> thing you want to see is Kratos from God of War collapsing onto <laughs> Mega Man because they were both too exhausted. <laughs> I am the God of. I'm not sure if that's the last thing I want to see. I actually want to see that. <laughs> Number two. Bring a jacket. I know it's California. I know we're always in a drought and a heat wave, but I can tell you from personal experience, those of you who want to get into Hall H are going to be camping out overnight, sleeping on the concrete, and it gets cold What's at in 3 in the morning in San Diego. Hall H is the big, awesome convention hall, right, Josh? Yes, it's the biggest one of the rooms. That's where Marvel and Warner Brothers and all the the huge movie announcements are made, the room itself, and every year it fills up long before the line to get into it is all in. So people will camp out quite literally from 4 p.m. the preceding day to get into a one-hour panel discussion at 5 p.m. on the day following. It is it is insanity, of which I happily take part. So those are my biggest tips. You know, Bring proper clothes, layer... Water is very important. Those costumes get warm. I know I'm a cosplayer myself. You can see me this year as Daredevil. That's, these are great safety tips, and it's worth it. Oh, my gosh. I've been to two Comic-Cons myself, and I'm not even that big of a comic book nerd, and I had a terrific time. In fact, a couple of years ago, we did a zombie race. Is that, that was a Walking Dead obstacle race at the San Diego Comic-Con, and it was so much fun. Josh did not hydrate himself well that day. I was not following my own advice. No, and I literally <laughs> saw him turn into a zombie. So this episode is dedicated to comics. I'm a Marvel guy, but we will try and give some airtime to DC and then Image and Dark Horse. But and... let's get started with the art of differential diagnosis in a superhero world. Now, the differential diagnosis is one of the biggest things. It's, in fact, mostly what I'm paid to do as an internal medicine physician. What most docs are paid to do is we get a list of symptoms, and we have to kind of put them together and figure out what things might be going on. I think the best analogy is our friendly car mechanics. When you tell them, oh, you know, car does this when I turn left, but only when going uphill, and it, it's accompanied by this sound. And they can put that all together and say, oh, you know, that's an axle problem, or that's a wheel bearing. It's the same kind of thing. We, put, we take a story, and we put it together, and we can hopefully tell you what's wrong and how to fix it. That actually is the quintessential art of medicine. When we are, conf you know, we're, when we're presented with a group of symptoms, we have to decide whether or not there is a complex or a simple explanation for these symptoms, and we come up with a list of possible explanations. And different specialties take a different priority in terms of how to go about sussing out these symptoms and deciding on a final diagnosis. So I'm going to give you guys two examples, and really this is actually for Ward and Santosh to, <laughs> to show the difference between how we do a differential and how that might change in the world of comics. All right, so first question, the patient is a 13-year-old girl who's very bright, generally does extremely well academically. 
For the last week, she's been sent home repeatedly from school with bad headaches. She has no prior history of headaches and no associated symptoms. The headaches resolve with rest in a dark room, and over-the-counter medications such as Tylenol and Advil offer little relief. Of note, she does have increased stress at home with her parents frequently discussing divorce. Now, do you guys want the multiple choice, or do you want to take a stab at what you think is going on? Most commonly in a child who's presenting like this, the almost always it's it's something like a tension headache. So a, a, a chronic tension headache that's appearing every day. Being that she's 13, I'd want to ask if her period recently started or if her parents ever had a history of migraine headaches. It's very strange for a migraine to go on-off, on-off like this. Uh, on a daily basis so migraines are in my differential but a little bit lower the fact that they're going away every night takes away some of the really scary stuff like a mass inside of the head meaning either a bleed or a tumor or something like this so I would say first tension headache second migraine and uh, is there anything else I well, want to Well, let me add something. She is 13, so sure. young women generally do not get this condition called temporal arteritis. That's generally a disease of older people. Of older so that's, people, sure. That makes yeah. it a lot less likely. Also, Root. that whether or not it was a sudden onset kind of tells us whether or not this is likely to be a ruptured brain aneurysm. They tend to be a lot more abrupt. But also, I, those won't go away, Ward. They can. They can... There's something called a sentinel bleed where they just bleed a little bit and then the pain goes away and then the big one comes and kills you. I would also love to find out if there's a gas leak in her house. Carbon monoxide poisoning can cause headaches and when you when she goes outside the house and breathes. Alright, you know what guys? I've read I've read the comic and I can't tell you about the gas leak. You got all the information that you (laughs) 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 This is a pretty well known comic which a lot of people will recognize as soon as I say it. What was what was choice D or yeah. E? All right, so here here are your five choices. Okay. Migraine headaches, mm-hmm. tension headaches, chronic daily headaches, puberty. I'm going to throw <laughs> in an extra one. Somatization related to stress avoidance or the emergence of a mutant power. Do you subscribe to the Occam's razor concept where simple explanation is always better than more complex ones? I agree. The most likely answer is the emergence of a mutant power. There you go. (laughs) This 13-year-old girl is none other than Kitty Pride from her first appearance in Uncanny X-Men number 129. Now, those of you who follow the X-Men universe know that most mutant powers tend to come on with the onset of puberty, which is why they mentioned 13. Now, Kitty Pride or Shadowcat's ability to phase through walls also caused a number of reactions with electronic devices. However, it does look a lot like migraines. Now, if she had come into your ER in the Marvel universe... I would have given her a shot of pain medicine, told her to go home, and follow her. Sent her on her way. (laughs) I'm sorry, Kitty, I misdiagnosed you. (laughs) I would have said chronic daily headache or tension headache, and I I would have actually gotten her to a headache clinic and had her monitored on a more regular basis because she's going to need, you know, if mutant powers aside, she's going to need coping mechanisms to get through stress and that kind of a thing. And, you know, you guys should all go back to our yoga episode. Yoga is fantastic for these kind of chronic illnesses. 
All right, all right. I'll give you guys one more chance, and then we'll go into these. All right? Okay. So this time, the patient is a 50-year-old man who complains of several minutes of blacking out. He does not recall fainting or falling, but there are several minutes that he can't remember. No recent head trauma. He has a high-stress job as a police officer and smokes at least two packs of cigarettes per day. He has a known history of heart disease, including a severe heart attack in the last few years. The most likely cause of his complaint is... All right, this time, Ward, let's start with you. All right, so... What do you think? I'm not giving you choices yet. All right, so in a a middle-aged male with a history of heart disease, any blacking out is cardiac until proven otherwise. So the differential include an arrhythmia, he could have had a heart attack. He could have had a pulmonary embolus, a blood clot in the lungs, causing him to pass out. He could have been doing drugs because of to cope with his stress. And one of his heart medications could have knocked him out. And his heart medication could have caused a complication. Okay, so those are the medical ones. Now, Santosh, I'm going to come to you and ask, based on that first case. Okay. And now that we're in a comic book world, I want you to expand your differential to include some of the, shall we say, supernatural. Wait, what does do that happen, think? always happen at a full moon, full moon or anything like that, or at night? We don't know. We don't, we don't know, know whether this is full moon. So I'm going to okay. ask. So you gave me the okay. medical. Or Santosh, I want you to reach deep into your creative background and tell All me right. what things would you add now that we know we're in a superhero world. Okay, we're in a superhero world, and this is good because I'm a pediatrician, so my differential for real-world adult diagnoses is not as good as your guys's. So, okay, I'm going to start with alien abduction, uh, always a classic reason to uh, lose large periods of time. Um, <clears throat> infection with an alien parasite, or let's say a bacterium or a virus, that would cause him to black out. He could have a superpower which causes him to freak out into an alternate personality then that alternate personality goes out and does some wacky thing werewolfism will do this you black out and usually wake up next to a dead body covered in blood and or fur that'll do it and is that pretty good all interdimensional right, so travel, guys... accidental interdimensional travel, where you zip in and out, a la uh, Nightcrawler, and he not can't bad, control it. Not bad. Okay. So I'm gonna I'm gonna fill in a few things. So as I said, we can knock out the onset of a new power for a couple reasons. One, he's 50. Most powers tend to present in teen years or early adulthood. Uh, All unless right. he was exposed to something. Well, like, like he denies. True. He denies any recent trauma, meaning no sudden lab accidents, no exposure, if we trust his history, no exposure to radioactive material, no comets falling from the sky. Wasn't so, bitten by a divine insect or right? multiple-legged creature. Okay. Right. That now, he does, have, so he does have this cardiac history. So, Ward, you were spot on with the medical. Could this be a stroke? Could this be an arrhythmia? Could this be fainting? Um, Energy-draining villains... Also, possibility if he was in, or in this particular case, possession by a ghost. And I am, of course, referring to Commissioner Gordon, who has been possessed by Dead Man, the living ghost, in DC's The Brave and the Bold, number 104. Ah, I forgot about possession. 
So now back to our listeners. If you guys realize, if it's this difficult for us to come up with what might be wrong, just in a world where we don't have to worry about superpowers. So say you some. Can, <laughs> you can only imagine the kind of expanded diagnosis, and I would love to be a doctor in the world of Marvel superheroes where now I have to figure out, oh, could, is this actually a stroke or is it memory-draining villains? Are these really just headaches or is this mutant powers? And that's why there are a couple superheroes who specialize in taking care of other superheroes, such as Cardiac in the Marvel Universe and the Night Nurse. But let's move on. As a doctor in a world with superheroes, how do you suppose Mtala would work in a superhero universe? So, Ward... You're our ER doc. Why don't you just give us a very brief description of what Mtala is and what it means? Ah, Mtala. That's the scourge of a lot of ER docs. And maybe, you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's a double-edged sword. So Mtala is short for the Emergency Medical Treatment and Active Labor Act. And this was passed by the United States Congress in 1986. What it basically says is that the emergency department, if we were to accept payments from Medicare, we are obligated to provide an appropriate medical screening exam. In other words, you know, we have to make sure that whoever walks into our emergency room is stable and has appropriate follow-up. And we have to do that regardless of citizenship legal status, ability to pay, insurance status, religion, whatever. We, we just, anyone who walks in, we are obligated to treat uh, and as, at least stabilize them. So this is another way of telling everybody who's against universal health care, guess what? There's already universal health care. <laughs> the emergency room cannot turn anybody away until they've evaluated them and determined they're stable. Now, right. stable is a tricky word. What does it mean to be stable if you have a broken bone? In some ways, it's stable if it's not affecting nerves and blood vessels. So you just put a splint on it, and that's it. You're stabilized. Your broken bone is still broken, and you still need follow-up, but you've been stabilized. So the word stable is a little tricky. This law only applies to emergency rooms, and only to emergency rooms and hospitals that accept Medicare pay, which is in effect, every single hospital. Yeah, I think it is pretty hard to dodge MTALA, which is a very, very good thing. It means that at the very least, everybody in this country will have some sort of access. It's not the greatest. It's not comprehensive health care, but it means that you can't be thrown out of an ER. You can be, after you're medically stable. After you're medically stable. One of the bad things about it is that it's unfunded. Right. People who come into hospitals and who cannot pay and who are treated by the hospital, if they can't pay, there's there's no funding for that patient. So, Josh, Amtala seems like a really good rule. You know, you got to take care of everybody until they're stable. You don't turn away sick people. So what are you worried about in the Marvel Universe with What Amtala? can go wrong? Yeah. yeah. Well, you guys may realize not every superhero is invulnerable, right? They're also going to get diseases. They're also going to get sick. And there's not a lot of hospitals that can handle superhumans. <laughs> I'm gonna give you I'm gonna give you two examples. Case in point, in Pulse number twelve, Jessica Jones, uh, who will be the star of an upcoming Marvel series on Netflix, 
a retired superhero. So she's got powers. We don't need to go with their we don't need to go into what they are because she's not a terribly interesting character. <laughs> but in one particular issue, she is pregnant and she presents to the ER in labor. And the doctor is evaluating her when the chief administrator of the hospital comes down and he starts freaking out and having a discussion with the doctor about transferring her. And, you know, the conversation is basically saying we cannot give birth to whatever she has in there. And the doctor's telling her, no, I have to evaluate because of Mtala. And this administrator says, we don't even know what kind of mutant is going to come out. She could give birth to an atomic bomb or a poison or a flammable gas. And, you know, while the administrator is being certainly mutant phobic (laughs) and super phobic, he does bring up some good points. So if we are obliged to evaluate somebody, what if in the act of giving birth, this woman lets loose a shockwave that levels the entire hospital? Or what if she turns into a gaseous form? Um, Another example is the Marvel superhero Black Bolt, who if you're familiar with the comics, is one of the Inhumans, has such a powerful voice that he cannot speak because a mere whisper could level a city block. Well, this guy has to have incredible self-control. And, you know, when you have superheroes duking it out up in the air, that's fine, but what if Black Bolt gets a paper cut? (laughs) Which is way, way more... I don't know if you've ever... I've had patients who come in with paper cuts unreasonably and but to put it a bit i have patients who come in with headaches and patients who come in with heart attacks and far and away the patient with the headache will always be the more vocal about their pain <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah that's been my experience as well now what do you do when you have superpowers who are either invulnerable and can't be treated or you're worried about the effect of treating them on the surrounding patients. Is it fair to say a hospital has to treat someone who, by giving birth, could destroy the hospital itself? So how how would you guys deal with this in a universe again, with superheroes? Wow, that's a tough one. Well, okay, so I think, I think in this case, the question is, is there a place that's capable of of handling a woman who could turn into a gaseous form or give birth to a mutant uh, atomic bomb. That's only two of the possibilities. That's correct. Or you have S.H.I.E.L.D., which is kind of like a semi-military police organization. Mm -hmm. You have the Charles Xavier Institute, who might be more capable of dealing with mutants, but they don't necessarily have any more medical training. What so about on the dark side? Doctor. What what about when they when they cage all these mutants? When you know these supervillains contain these these um, these superheroes? What facility do they use to, to contain these gaseous forms and shock waves and bombs? I'm glad you asked. They get sent to the negative zone, which is a prison in a different dimension, built and or they get sent to the raft, which is on an island. It's like Alcatraz, but in New York. Oh, so I got it. I got it. I have your answer. So in Imtala, it's all about capacity. I have, if my hospital does not have capacity to treat a patient, and, you know, I can tell you this. I'm not going to mention my specific hospital, but we we do not have the capacity to treat a woman who can turn into a gaseous form and or (laughs) cause a sound wave that can level the entire city of San Francisco. So we do not have that capacity. What we do, Imtala says, we we can ask 
to transfer that patient to a higher level of care. And they don't have a choice. If they have capacity, they have to take that patient. So I will pick up my phone and call the accepting physician in the negative zone and say, hey, I have a patient for you at, who's going to give birth anytime now, and you need to take that patient into well, the negative the, zone. The negative zone doesn't have an ER, you just said, Josh. They no, don't. No. I don't even know. You know, sadly, the comics haven't really touched on a lot of the I will go with that woman personnel. to the negative zone <laughs> to be the treating physician in the negative zone. Oh, so you, oh, you're, cool with, you're cool with treating them. You just need to get them away from all of your other vulnerable patients. Oh, yeah. She yeah, sounds yeah. like a lovely la- young lady. Why would I not <laughs> want to treat her? <laughs> okay. Slash and really, the best, the best they touch on this is that in places like the negative zone and the raft, a lot of the things, even though they don't comment on medical personnel, what they do have is a bunch of usually unexplained power dampeners that help keep all the supervillains in these various places at almost normal levels of vulnerability. So that might suppress her ability. And in fact, that's what they did during the story arc in Marvel Siege, where Luke Cage, a man with unbreakable skin, had a heart attack. Well, how do you do a catheter, an angiogram on someone who's had a heart attack if they have unbreakable skin? You put them in a facility that has a power dampener, so their powers no longer work. They don't really explain how the power dampeners work, but you are absolutely <laughs> right, Ward, that there are several places that could be transferred as long as they could obtain personnel. Ah, cool. That's awesome. So, and Luke needs to lay off the hamburgers. Yeah. <laughs> so that, interestingly enough, Luke Cage and Jessica Jones are married, and it is his baby that she is carrying in this particular ER. Comic. All right. So, and these are all the upcoming Netflix shows: uh, Daredevil, Luke Cage, Jessica Jones, and Iron Fist. And they what all happened they are to the baby. Oh, the baby's oh. fine. They, okay. The baby ended up not having superpowers, okay. and and Luke Cage just kind of works as a superhero for hire, and he, Jessica Jones has become a stay-at-home wife. <laughs> okay, so oh. there, there was a perceived risk of what would happen with the baby or with Jessica when she gave birth. But it was good to be safe, but there was really nothing to be worried about at the end of the day. Correct. Okay. Correct. Good. So let's move on now. I am going to take a moment to tell you guys again. I'm sure you've already realized it. I am much more of a Marvel Universe than a DC guy. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I love me some Batman. I have absolutely <laughs> adored The Flash this season. But far and away the Marvel comic universe is where I did most of my research for this episode. Is there a reason for that? I, I was told, correct me if I'm wrong, that uh, DC characters, superheroes are just too straight-laced. They're not relatable. They're just, you know, it's, it, I am super and just I have, you know, no, no human flaws in terms of, you know, I hate myself, my mommy has issues, you know, that sort of stuff, where Marvel is more <laughs> relatable. You know, I grew up an angsty teenager and, you know, all of a sudden, this is my superpower. Is that? Is there any truth to that? Well, the DC heroes are much more one-note. Um, Superman is always a Boy Scout. Batman is always traumatized. Green Lantern is a space policeman. There's, <laughs> you're right. There's not a lot of relatability. Uh, I never Marvel, thought of him as a space policeman, but that's absolutely right. 
Marvel, they try and make the characters relatable by including a flaw with everyone. Iron Man is an alcoholic and narcissist. Every Marvel superhero has something. They're either insecure or they have something going on that makes them more humanizing. Not that we can relate to them, but you don't see them as a perfect, untouchable thing anymore. You're like, oh, they're just trying to get through their day just like me. It's just that their day includes fighting space aliens. Is that why you like them, or do you just like the superpowers and stories better? A little bit of both. Actually, my favorite superhero is Captain America, who is really, he is an enhanced human. He's not a mutant. He basically got fancy steroids back in the 1940s (laughs) that gave him supernatural reflexes, but he's somebody who commands the respect of all these people who are vastly more powerful than him just because he always wants to do the right thing, and he's an excellent tactician, and it's really showing that the best superpower is leadership. Ah. I can remember. It's like, it's like so Batman, funny. it's like Batman without the trauma. Captain America is basically <laughs> Batman without the riches or the yeah. trauma. And he, he fills out a t-shirt nicely as well. Yes. Let's start getting into a few of the Marvel heroes one by one. There's a couple I definitely want to touch on. And let's talk about how the medicine portrayed in the comics may or may not be relatable to the medicine in the real world. We'll start with Spider-Man. Very popular. A lot of terrible Spider-Man movies, with the exception (laughs) of the the original Sam Raimi one. But Spider-Man is coming back into the Marvel Universe. Spider-Man has been around for a long time. And before we get into his actual comic book medicine one, which is a great story, I I do have a clip I would like to play for you guys. (laughs) And and Santosh, do you want to give a little intro as our infectious disease doctor about? <laughs> sure. So, Spider-Man in this clip is going to fight Mr. Measles. <laughs> we have spoken about measles multiple times during our podcasting days, and measles is a virus. And so Spidey is actually fighting the measles in this in this clip, so... or our personified measles, I guess, called Mister Measles. But he's gonna fight. He's gonna fight personified measles. So I'm gonna play the full clip. It's about a little over a minute, and it is narrated by a young Morgan Freeman, sponsored. <laughs> Sponsored by the electric company. Let's enjoy. We swear this is Morgan Freeman. Next to the pickle factory, the evil Mr. Measles is planning to rule the world. Yes, I'm finally going to do it. I have a million measles spots in this bag. I'll throw these spots at people and they'll get the measles. (laughs) Then everybody will have to stay in bed in the dark where they can't read. That doesn't sound so bad. I'll rule the world. Watch out. Here I come. Have you had your measles shot? But our web-slinging friend, Spider-Man, is swinging across the city. His spider-sense tells him something's wrong. I see danger. It's Mr. Measles. Don't let him spot you. (laughs) Too late! When I fling my bag of spots, you'll get the measles and have to stay in bed. You can't have books, magazines, or newspapers. (laughs) Then I can rule the world! (laughs) 
shopping bag at measles too. <laughs> Stop! Spider-Man, my enemy! I'll fix you! What are you going to do about these spots? <laughs> I'll swing this whip! That's what you easy menace! Well, that should do it. <laughs> you win this time, you creepy crawly. But I'll be back. <laughs> but did Spidey really beat Mr. Measles? What do I see in my hands and arms? Oh, no. Spots. Looks like ten days in bed for me. <laughs> <laughs> so Apparently, you can defeat the measles by webbing them, and but... you, your car and shopping bag can get measles. <laughs> by the way, so... did you spot him? That was a solid pun by measles. Was, man. It, was. it was. That was a great pun. That that's classic Stanley writing right there with the with the punny punny writing. Yes, yes. So I can't really comment anymore about the medical veracity of of Spider-Man fighting the measles with webs, but I just was so excited <laughs> to find that clip. Did you get your measles vaccine? <laughs> and everybody out there, please do get your measles yes, vaccine. It can be much more dangerous than just spots. So, yeah. But let's move on to our, our first comic that I kind of want to discuss, which is another Spider-Man comic. It was widely derided as a ridiculous Spider-Man story. And in fact, the arc where my, my friend Crystal gave up on Spider-Man for many years following the conclusion of this. She put down the book, she put down the book and said, nope, I'm done. Walked away from <laughs> Spider-Man for years. Wow. That's a powerful arc. So in... Spider in a 2009 story arc known as Spider-Man Rain, R-E-I-G-N, like rain of whatever, not not water from the sky rain. The, other the overall story is not pertinent to our conversation, except for the fact that Mary Jane, we learn, died of cancer. Oh, and Spider-Man says, "Being my blood is radioactive. Everything inside me is radioactive. Being close to me all those years, being with me is what gave you cancer. And the strong implication is that Spider-Man's radioactive sperm killed Mary Jane by giving her cancer. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> First of all, Mary Jane should have been using condoms. Well, say. not if they're married, Ward. Oh, well, yeah. Well, they were. <laughs> yeah, that's right. No, they were. They were married. And I think the so the question, of course, would be, could this happen? Let's let's take for granted <laughs> that yes, a man could get a man could get spider powers from a radioactive bite. I'm totally willing to accept that. Now, does if we accept that, does that also mean that that same radioactive blood could be transmitted? So radioactivity in our body tends to concentrate in certain places and rapidly dividing cells are a very good vehicle for that. So rapidly dividing cells are found in bone marrow, they're found in hair follicles, our liver cells rapidly divide the cells in our intestinal tract and finally our sperm and our eggs. 
uh, sperm much more so than eggs are constantly dividing so radioactivity yes can concentrate and transmit through sperm I I'd give it a maybe okay there is a real-world equivalent so yes they did a couple studies on the workers from Chernobyl and found that their sperm did have high levels of radiation all right but <laughs> but more but could that give you anything? Well, back a while back, uh, Slate, the magazine Slate, did a brief article on the apparent poisoning of Russian spy Alexander Litvenko, and he was found to have radioactive polonium-210 in his body. So let's start from the from the idea that this is going to be equivalent to radiation that Spider-Man had. Okay. So could he have a radi? So the question is, could this Russian spy who was known to have radioactive polonium in his body, could he have irradiated people around him before he died? Well, if you okay, remember our okay, disaster gotcha. medicine episode, you know, having radiation in yourself is is already bad. You can't put that time and barrier distance. So in his case, polonium emits radiation in the form of alpha particles. Unlike gamma rays or X rays, alpha emissions can be blocked by something as insubstantial as paper or the layer of dead cells on the surface of the skin. So those particles can't travel more than a few more than a few centimeters. But that said, in him, it would have been able to seep through all his capillaries into very close proximity with every one of his tissues, so he could not have irradiated his friends and family directly, but it's possible that he exposed them to radioactive polonium through his bodily fluids, which doctors confirmed by testing his urine for these same alpha emissions. So anyone who came <laughs> into contact, this is all real, real-world wow. medicine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This means, so doctors confirmed the presence of radiation in his by testing his urine for these alpha particles. That means that anyone who came into contact with his urine, feces, or sweat would be at risk, as well as a sexually transmitted disease since radioactive elements do show up in semen. Right. And researchers, researchers have found traces of depleted uranium in the semen of Gulf War veterans years after their initial exposure. So, in order for someone to catch radiation sickness and cancer, they would have to be contaminated by bodily fluids, which is ingest, inhale, or otherwise take up enough excreted polonium to become sick. So, in theory, could this happen? Well, if she was having regular intercourse with Spider-Man, and we and know his, his blood's radioactive... And the radioactivity is not being depleted. There's no ongoing decay because he's saying he is actively radioactive. Right. So he's not carrying around like an, a polonium or an element with him. Well, <laughs> I'm going to say, you know, sperm. Wow. But it means that, you know, but it explains why Spider-Man wouldn't necessarily irradiate Aunt May or anyone else because his skin itself blocks the transmission of those particles, but bodily fluids could do it. So if we're going to go full-on Mythbusters on this one, this is, <laughs> this is oh, plausible. Oh, even confirmed. Okay, all right. I would be very disturbed oh, if Aunt May died of radioactive cancer. There, there are two... Cancer. <laughs> so there are two questions to be addressed. One is which... One is the question, can the radioactivity be transmitted? And I think you did an excellent job of that. The second is, is there enough ionizing radiation to actually cause cancer over time? Which is a different question of dose and that kind of thing. And I don't think we have enough information to address that question. All right, so let's say plausible. 
plausible sketch. Plausible. Oh, yeah. I agree. <laughs> All right. Now, we'll stay in the Spider-Man overall universe. Now, the whole Marvel universe is connected, but we'll we'll just make a lateral shift. The next character is Michael Morbius, the living vampire. Are either of you familiar with the character of Morbius or no? I've seen him in the cartoon form where he had the suckers on his hand. Yeah, he so he was a scientist who liked bats for some reason or he was trying to he was trying to cure a disease and he accidentally turned himself to, into a vampire or a half vampire. He had to suck blood out of people with his hand. Yeah, so yeah. he was a brilliant scientist born in Greece. Yay. Yeah. And he <laughs> But he suffered from a debilitating blood disease. Now, they never actually say what it is, but we are led to believe that it's some sort of hemolytic anemia or hemophilia. He developed an experimental treatment involving vampire bats and electroshocks, but the side effects, of course, turned him into a sort of pseudo-vampire who needed to consume blood in order to survive. In early books, he gained an aversion to sunlight, as well as later on, uh, he has his overall appearance changed as well. He his nose flattened, his skin became pale. Later on, he got abilities as flight and enhanced strength. This was not when he was first created. Hmm. So let's kind of talk about vampirism in general. You know, ignoring the flight and hypnotism, there are some equivalents for possible medical explanations for vampires. <laughs> There's a disease called porphyria, which affects your hemoglobin, the hemoglobin being what carries the oxygen around your body. Now, hemoglobin is made up of four porphyrin rings. That's the part of hemoglobin that iron attaches to. Certain diseases, for example, one called porphyria cutanea tarda, affect these rings. They makes them malfunction. Now, Ward, have you ever seen a case of Porphyria cutanea tarda? It's quite, you know, Porphyria in general is a relatively rare condition, so I've actually never seen it in person. So why am I talking about this disease after mentioning vampires? Well, because some of the examples of Porphyria cutanea show skin problems, severe blisters that appear on any sun-exposed areas of the body, such as the hands and the face. So the symptoms of porphyria can be alleviated by avoiding sunlight since exposure to sunlight severely aggravates the symptoms in another extremely rare form of the disorder called congenital erythropoietic porphyria. The teeth can be stained a reddish brown due to the buildup of pigments. Or, to put it another way, your teeth can be stained such that it looks like you've just been feasting on blood. Wow. Along with avoidance of sunlight, since many of the porphyrias involve a deficiency of red blood cells, affected patients vary pale from being anemic and may require repeated blood transfusions. So, let's review. You have people who are very pale, require frequent doses of blood, and may exhibit examples of stained teeth and overall weakness having to avoid sunlight. What does that sound like to you? Oh, 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 oh. The disease that Michael Morbius, the living vampire, was suffering from was in fact one of the porphyrias, and whatever his experimental treatment was 
aggravated it to the point of becoming a Porphyria Cutanea Tarda. Now, I cannot explain the super strength, I cannot explain <laughs> the fight, but... It's great that you brought up Porphyria. There was a Count Dragulia at one point, and the myths of vampires have been around in medieval Europe for a very, very long time. And a lot of this may have come about from people who had Porphyria. Some of these, as you said, Josh, are genetic diseases, and these very wealthy people in Eastern Europe who suffered from inbreeding, amongst other things, may have had diseases like porphyria in the family so when we hear about vampire families that come from very rich people staying in dark ugly castles that actually has a possible medical foundation to it with a genetic disorder like porphyria so mythbusters <laughs> santos I'll go, I'll go plausible on this one <laughs> ward i'll go with plausible as well it's a bit of a reach but plausible <laughs> All right, so Morbius the Living Vampire, plausible. <laughs> We're two for awesome. two, guys. So now let's stay in New York, but move over from Manhattan to Hell's Kitchen. This year, Netflix premiered an original series by Marvel based on Daredevil. Now, I would expect that would make both of you much more familiar with Daredevil. What are his abilities? What do you guys know about him? Okay, so Daredevil lost his sight. He's a blind person whose other senses are somehow heightened. Daredevil lost his sight as a child, saving an old man who was about to be hit by a truck. He pushed him out of the way. The truck crashed, and the toxic ooze splashed into young Matt Murdock's eyes, blinding him, but then later giving him superpowers. For those of you who are fans of the Ninja Turtles, it is thought that this ooze that blinded Daredevil is what fell into the sewers and created the Ninja Turtles. The Ninja Turtles creator loved Daredevil and the Ninja Clan in Ninja Turtles. Do you remember what they were called? Foot. And do you happen to know the name of the Ninja Clan in Daredevil? <laughs> it's the hand. <laughs> so there are some links. The question is, Daredevil supposedly despite being blind is able to see with his ears. And the question is, is that possible? They actually have been, yeah, I've seen some documentaries on uh, people who lost their sight, some of them at a very young age, and self-taught or learned how to use echolocation to, to do a lot of active things, I'll, including I'll walking. I'll go with the hit docudrama Ray, starring Jamie Foxx, and I don't know if this was true, but the character, the Jamie Foxx, who's playing Ray, does mentioned that I wear these hard-soled shoes so I can hear the echoes and know where I'm going. And he, he mentions that after getting really upset where the bus driver asks him, how do you get around without a cane or a dog? So here's how echolocation works. They produce mouth clicks and listen to the returning echoes. Now, they've done a lot of MRIs on the most notable individuals, including Daniel Kish and Ben Underwood. They played those recorded sounds back to the echolocators while their brain activity was being measured using functional MRI. And when they heard these sounds again in the machine, not only did they perceive the objects based on the echoes, meaning how did a tree get into this MRI, <laughs> but they also showed activity in those areas of the brain that normally process visual information, primarily the visual cortex, or V1. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, the brain areas that processed auditory information 
were no more activated by sound recordings of outdoor scenes with echoes than they were by outdoor scenes without echoes. So they're hearing just the same as you or I, but they're also processing those sounds with their visual brain areas as well. That is so awesome. That actually goes along with some recent technology where people are trying to use a sense of taste to actually stimulate the visual cortex. So for blind people, actually putting a sensor on the tongue to stimulate the visual cortex. And it seems that the brain does have the plasticity to cross those fibers to make this type of cross-sensing work where taste becomes sight or sound becomes sight. So this is a very real-world awesome thing. I do not want to taste the world. (laughs) Here's a travel story. When we took a slum tour of one of the towns in India, the last thing I wanted to do was to have a taste version of that tour. (laughs) (laughs) So if we suppose that Daredevil is a human echolocator and has just spent all that time training to do it, and he's not somebody, you know, you can see in the Netflix show, he gets his ass beat a lot. There's no super strength. There's no flight. He's a what we call street-level hero helping individuals in his neighborhood, and his only superpower appears to be this ability to see with his ears. Yeah. So, Santosh? To the degree that Daredevil does it, because, I mean, he seems to perceive even the the slightest types of signals, and he seems to be able to do it kind of on the fly... Well, look, I've seen a video of uh, that Ben Underwood person, that, that young American who um, lost his vision when he was a kid, sure. and he uses echolocation by using clicks with his tongue. Okay. And I've seen videos of him doing running, playing basketball, uh, rollerblading. I, I, have, I have full sight, and I can't rollerblade. <laughs> I mean, you know Daredevil I mean? in this case, though, he can do some rather superhuman feats even without sight. Well, yes, but then if you see him in some of these fist fights, he does get his ass beat when, you know, because he can't stand there going click, 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 click. And and he's using echolocation. He's no Manny Pacquiao. And he's using echolocation (laughs) other than his own clicks. He's using all of the visual stimuli kind of, or the the auditory stimuli around him. Sure, I'll say yes. Ward, plausible or confirm? I would confirm it. Guys, we are on a roll. Look at this. We're practically living in a Marvel universe. All right. Let's move on to one of the more popular Marvel properties, the X-Men. Now, there's a lot that we could go over here, but I'm going to run through some of the very easiest ones or most obvious. Now, you may not know this, but the X-Men, as they were originally created, have always had a very strong following or association with the LGBT community. Yeah, the X-Men originally was created in a time of the 1960s. And the whole point of the X-Men is that they looked like everyone else, but something that they were born with and couldn't help made them outsiders and freaks to their community at large. Yeah, I just understand why the LGBT community would, you know, relate to a group of people who are basically outcasts and who are given up by their families and, you know, who have to find comfort and solace among each other. The X-Men were never meant to be gay, but the struggle of 
the homosexual community was definitely a factor in the creation of these because they had uh, superheroes who were reflecting the struggles of black people at the time in Luke Cage and Black Panther. They had superheroes who were reflecting childhood insecurity and awkwardness and bullying with Spider-Man. The X-Men were meant to appeal to people who were outcasts who didn't feel that they could walk around in their own skin. So even though it was not explicitly said X-Men are the gay superheroes, that was thought up. Uh, the parallels were drawn very, very early on, even in their creation. Gotcha. And Ward's right. There was a scene in even the first X-Men movie where Iceman's mother goes, Bobby, have you tried not being a yeah. mutant? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that literally was, that was, you know, pretty much a coming out scene. It's a fun historical point of interest but let's go over a a couple very fast possible medical conditions in the x-men world beast he's big he's blue he's hairy all over the place can you guys think of ignoring the color (laughs) can you think of anyone or any medical condition that might cause someone to look like the character of beast hypertrichosis is definitely a possibility yeah like Absolutely. Hypertrichosis or werewolf syndrome. Generalized hypertrichosis, uh, which trichosis being Latin for hair, and hypertrichosis meaning excessive hair, where hair occurs over the entire body, the face, the arms. If you look these up, this is what the first werewolves were thought to be. So you have an unusually strong or acrobatic, well-read gentleman who becomes afflicted with a condition that causes him to begin growing hair everywhere, all over his body, and boom, you have Beast. The blue is probably just some sort of dye that he does to be fashionable. (laughs) Plausible. Oh, yeah. Now, I will say, acquired hypertrichosis, it very commonly presents when it does present. It's a rare condition. It's linked to metabolic disorders with such as hyperthyroidism, side effects of certain drugs, and many cancers. Now, another one I'm going to go into is Professor X, famous telepath, and his prodigy student, Jean Grey, also a very strong telepath telekinetic. Now, here we start getting into more mental health disorders rather than pure physical conditions, which is always a little bit trickier for those of us in the internal medicine world. It's very difficult to to work with the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Psych Diseases. <laughs> but are either one of you familiar with the condition known as folie a deux, or shared psychotic disorder? Yeah, yeah. So this falls under shared psychosis and mass psychosis, where two people have the same delusion at the same time. And I think one now, person's delusion is actually affecting the other person. In fact, one who's dominant and comes up with the delusions and psychotic delusions first will somehow influence the other to accept that person's delusions in as reality. Correct. So now let me pitch an idea to you. Professor X, famous telepath who has sworn to never use his abilities without permission on anyone and certainly never uses them on regular humans. The only time we see him interacting using his telepathy is with other mutants. Okay. All right? Let us suppose that he has a delusion that he has telepathy, that there's really no mutant ability of telepathy. So you have a dominant person 
who initially forms a delusional belief during a psychotic episode. He goes out, meets Jean Grey, tells her, I have this special ability where I can read minds. And by the way, you do too, and you can influence people with your thoughts. Okay, oh. Forms a delusional belief during a psychotic episode. Imposes it on another person or persons, known as the secondary or acceptor, okay. with the assumption that the secondary person might not have become deluded if left to his or her own devices. All right. Now, that's fully impose. There's also fully simultaneous, which describes where two people considered to suffer independently from psychosis influence the content of each other's delusions, gotcha. meaning they both think they can thought read now. Oh. And, the, and there's a mass delusion where very rarely does, in the Charles Xavier X-Men comics, very rarely does he use his telepathy occasionally to communicate across long distances with the other X-Men, but he has to have Cerebro. Well, Cerebro could just be hooked up to a fancy walkie-talkie system, <laughs> and he could think he's basically beaming into all their heads, and what the X-Men are sharing is a mass delusion of telepathy. Ah. Huh. All right. So that that's a very strong, suggestive individual. That guy has some... Like a cult yeah, leader. <laughs> like a David <laughs> Koresh style. <laughs> if, we, if we ignore telepathy as a possibility, and we just bring this into the real world, what you are looking at is someone who has such a strong personality... They have convinced others to accept their delusion. So huh? we're that one we're not even going to put plausible, confirmed, busted because you have to make a lot of suspensions of disbelief to even to even begin diagnosing. But that would be the closest medical equivalent. I think that's a very interesting way of looking at um, this story. It's I'll finish up with the Marvel universe with Wolverine, and I'm just going to ask you guys. He's very often accused of having antisocial personality disorder, <laughs> but Santosh, Ward, based on what you know of the diagnosis of antisocial personality disorder, is Wolverine truly antisocial, or does he just have chronic post-traumatic stress? Well, uh, <laughs> he's a complicated he's, person. He's a complicated person. You know, I, I would say he did certainly go through trauma very early on. He had his memories messed with he had his body messed with he went through a lot of pain and torture and for him to be con diagnosed with ptsd he is hyper vigilant uh any little thing sets him off difficulty sleeping for sure he has flashbacks certainly he has suppression of memories and feelings, certainly. I think he meets pretty much every criteria for PTSD. And as we know, many people with PTSD are not easy to be around. I don't think I would give him a personality disorder. They are certainly so, affecting his daily, daily life and his relationships. And you're Again. right. So now let's look at, for the people who say that Wolverine has antisocial personality disorder... Let's look at some of the others. Does he break the law repeatedly? Absolutely. Does he disregard the safety of self and others? Oh, yeah. Does he have problems with substance abuse? Yep. Does he? Uh, I, does he actually? Well, he's, he's, a, he's, a bit of an, he's a bit of an alcoholic in terms of consumption, but his mutant healing factor means he physically cannot get drunk. Gotcha. So, but, I mean, you could make that argument. Does he lie, steal, and fight often? <laughs> yes, yes. Well, well stealing, he, yes. Fights. he fights. He yeah. fights. 
lie. He doesn't lie. Mm-hmm. He doesn't steal. Uh, does he n- show no guilt or remorse for his actions? That's not That's true. Not true. I think he definitely yeah, he does feel. Wolverine's entire life is full of re- guilt and remorse. <laughs> yeah. And can he act witty and charming? <laughs> He's quite the ladies' man. <laughs> ladies love him. You could make a possible argument, but I would say the strongest one that leads to chronic PTSD over antisocial is this lack of guilt or remorse. Otherwise, he does meet a lot of the criteria, but I think looking at his actions in context of a larger picture... I think at looking at his reaction, he is the poster child for PTSD. Right. Well, I'm, so that, I like this. This is a differential diagnosis of a superhero. Yeah. <laughs> and, and if you believe in the rule of parsimony, I would say that the simplest explanation of PTSD that fits pretty much all his symptoms would be the diagnosis that I would go with. Right. And you were saying, John, so, I just want to clarify for our listeners. So the fact that he does show remorse, that leans away from antisocial personality disorder, correct? From the description of people with antisocial personality disorder, there are very few, it seems like there are very few redeeming qualities in terms of their, you know, personal decisions and personal interactions. Where PTSD, I I see people with PTSD as more of a tortured soul and with a storied past, and uh, that's affecting their current, you know, their current situation. I think that just fits that fits Wolverine so much better. I agree. I agree. And he's and he's a complicated character and guys, I would love to do a yearly Comic-Con comic book medicine show. <laughs> so, cuz there's so much, so much I could go over in the Marvel universe <laughs> alone. And oh, yeah. for those who send but, us any worries, problems regarding regarding that we need to do DC as well, don't worry. We will find someone who is as passionate about the DC universe as Josh is about the Marvel universe, and will discuss their diseases as well. <laughs> so, all I'm going to say regarding the DC universe, um, unfortunately, I don't have a lot I can comment on. Some future possible topics are the Flash and what hypermetabolism means, sure. and could it be equivalent to a hyperthyroidism. Could we actually see the Flash <laughs> get a hyperthyroid a hyperthyroid storm? Sure, sure. Right? Uh-huh, oh my. Uh-huh, yeah. uh-huh. And Santosh, just for you, I, I really don't have any medical diagnoses for these, but I thought you might like to know that of the Green Lanterns, okay. the space police, right. there exists one who I thought you would feel a very special affinity for sure. He's only shown up in two issues ever. Yeah. Uh, the first one being Green Lantern number 188, and it is Liesel Pond. I'm oh, sorry, Green Lantern 25, the concluding issue of the Sinestro Corp War, and Green Lantern 188. It's Liesel Pond, a Green Lantern who is a super intelligent smallpox virus. <laughs> All right. Infection in superhero world. Now, the Green Lanterns work by expressing their will. Whatever they think can be formed by... So, one has to wonder, how do you infect the world with justice? (laughs) Can you imagine being a superhero who could be defeated by a vaccination? Sure, sure. 
Yeah, just eliminate it. <laughs> so, but why a super intelligent smallpox virus as a protagonist? I mean, he's still a good guy, I'm assuming, because he's a... He's a good guy. He's a good guy. They never explain it. The character is just introduced, and we're expected to just be like, all right, seems legit. This is in the same universe where they have a living planet as a Green Lantern as well, Mogo. (laughs) So, and this is also what drives me more towards Marvel, Uh and it's much more realistic portrayal (laughs) of things than DC. Realistic. His friend Mumpsman just did not take off. Hey, hey, (laughs) don't start with me on realistic. We We just had four different plausibles and one confirmed as we went through the Marvel Universe and medical conditions. So, my friend, do not start with me saying I am wrong to call a ridiculous, super-intelligent smallpox virus who longs for justice. (laughs) Now, let's close out with one other comic. We've, you know, I've briefly mentioned the two bigs, Marvel and DC. Image Comics produces another very well-known comic book that has been made into a TV show that's even better known. And, of course, I'm talking about The Walking Dead. Nice. Oh, Oh, that was Image Comics. Now, one of the nice things I like about The Walking Dead comics is they never, ever tell you what originally caused the zombie virus because Kirkman is not interested in that. He's interested in how the world reacts following this apocalypse, not in what caused it. And in one of the issues, they discover, Rick's group discovers that, in fact, everyone is infected with the zombie virus. So whether or not a zombie bites you, if you die, let's say from a cold, or from trauma, or a gunshot wound, you will come back as a zombie unless you have your brain shot. Now, we we talked briefly earlier about zombies and their parallels in our episode on prion diseases. So what I want to talk about here is when they say, yes, this is a virus that survives in humans and reanimates them after death. We are all carrying this virus around, and the zombies transmit it. Santosh, you're our infectious disease doctor. Are there viruses that can survive in dead bodies? How realistic is this? If we if we take for granted that a zombie virus is real, <laughs> sure. sure. What what's our model here? Like how how could a dead body transmit to a live? Is this something that can happen? So this has been in the news very very much over the past couple of years, actually. So everyone should recognize our good friend or enemy, however you want to say it, Ebola. One of the big warnings that has been put out by the World Health Organization to many, many countries where the Ebola epidemic spread was, we understand that you want to honor your dead and do proper burial practices for all of the people who have succumbed to this virus, but please do be aware that the Ebola virus and a couple of other hemorrhagic fever viruses, such as Lhasa, can persist in body fluids such as blood, semen, for a 
certain amount of time after the body has died. So when you are burying these people or cremating, when you're handling dead bodies, there is a very real risk of transmission from the bodily fluids of the dead body to the live people. So absolutely there are viruses that survive after death. And I'm reading a Time article on, on this very subject, and apparently they did some studies and uh, on monkeys, and uh, the, the Ebola virus can remain infectious in a corpse for up to a t couple of weeks. Right. So yeah. that's why a lot of what was done by the WHO and other organizations when they were trying to help contain the virus was to go from village to village and say, listen, please don't handle your dead. Please leave them. We will try to take care of them. And they would bury them in hazmat suits and full personal protective equipment so that the virus wouldn't transmit with an accidental, for instance, a bleed on a dead body and that blood comes into contact with someone handling that body. You know, Santosh, I want to ask you this. Have you heard of this? I read in the same article that the longest-lasting infectious agent in a corpse or in a body is the smallpox scab. Apparently, they can last for decades. You can you can exhume a corpse from like 1910. Right. And that scab, if you grind it up and rub it into a rub it into a wound, that would still infectious. Yeah, and in fact, Josh talked about this when we discussed vaccines. This was a process. Yeah. We took advantage of this in a process called variolation before we had vaccination. So we actually used the scab to transmit the virus from person to person to inoculate them with this kind of dead, not quite alive virus so that hopefully the next time that person saw smallpox, they wouldn't get as sick. It wasn't the best form of vaccination, but it was a very, very early predecessor. So yes, there are other diseases. I'm going to go and say to wrap it all up, yes, viruses can survive in dead bodies. Now, if we assume that the bites from zombies don't kill by transmitting the zombie virus, mm -hmm but kill by transmitting sepsis and all the other infections that that corpse may have had. So the zombie virus just animates them. Sure. So if everyone carries the zombie virus, kind of like a zombie, let's say a zombie HIV, <laughs> for whatever reason, or a zombie smallpox, sure, sure. You, you get bitten by a zombie, it's the resulting infection from bacteria, from sepsis, from anything else that was walking around in this rotting mouth, and that is what kills you then the zombie virus simply reanimates you. Gotcha, gotcha. I understand. So, like you were saying, you might not die by zombie either. You might die for what... So, end of discussion is this. Plausible, busted, or confirmed? <laughs> if there was such an illness that could reanimate dead flesh, we'd say plausible. But that actually is the major failing of this particular hypothesis yeah I agree <laughs> alright so busted but should an actual zombie apocalypse <laughs> arise cook that meat cook that meat <laughs> or don't die don't don't that concludes this episode on comic book medicine we will throw in a small, just the tip, which 
I think you guys know where it's going to be. <laughs> San Diego. Paradise. <laughs> Every July, San Diego plays host to the largest gathering of pop culture, comic books, and geekery that the world has ever seen <laughs> with well over hundreds of thousands of attendants, five days of convention hall and outside events with parties and panels, drawing celebrities from around. It is pretty much next to impossible some of these days to get a ticket to Comic-Con. But even if you don't, wandering around the Gaslamp District of San Diego during Comic-Con can be absolutely delightful. There are booths by Adult Swim. There's a Assassin's Creed obstacle course. <laughs> there are hundreds of people dressed up in costumes. You can see Mega Man walking around arm-in-arm arm with Harley Quinn. You can see Kratos passing out from not having enough to eat or drink. Ghost of Sparta. I cannot... <laughs> there will be people having Nerf gun fights down by the Hilton Bayside. I cannot recommend it enough, but if you try and beat me to Hall H, I will cut you. <laughs> <laughs> and... <laughs> On if you guys have never been to a comic book convention, go. Hopefully, we've made you at least a little more interested in comics in general. Yeah. So that wraps up this episode. We are now available not only on iTunes but also on Stitcher and Podbay. Please, if you like the show, give us a rating and recommendation. It helps our popularity and helps more people find out about the show. We really appreciate it. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or arguments about whether Marvel or DC is better, <laughs> I can be contacted at Dr. J Comedy on Twitter, Santosh at Toshifro, and Ward at Pokes and Rec. We've got one more episode coming up of one more full episode and one more journal club before we come to the end of our first season. Things have been fantastic. You guys are all amazing. We'd love to hear your feedback about what else you'd like to see. But until next time, happy travels. Bye, guys. Happy travels. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.